0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure.
1: Just as important, if not more important than the end objectives, is the journey and that you need to savour and appreciate the journey that you go on.
0: Today I'm talking to Professor Tom Scott. Tom is Professor of Materials at Bristol University and also leads two spin-out companies from the university, Imitec, which specializes in the development and manufacture of novel methods for detecting, characterizing and mapping radiation. And Arkenlight, the diamond battery company, which develops and manufactures micropower sources based on radiovoltaic technology. Tom lives in Bristol with his wife, Nikki. They met at Sixth Form College, so we might hear about that. And they have two children, Imogen and Joe. Tom, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: So I, uh, we're going to talk through your, your career so far, which, as I said to you earlier, feels like being on a, an express train with a thousand things going on at 100 miles an hour. So you grew up in, in Dorset. Um, how would you sort of describe the young Tom growing up? What were you like?
1: Well, I was, uh, I was sports mad. So um, I played first 15 rugby, played Tennis, um, uh, sort of county level. I played football uh, at at a high level as well. And um, just after my A levels, I was playing semi professional, um, which was was fun, but it was quite brutal. <laughs> and uh, eventually, was convinced by my parents I needed to give up <laughs> that because I had too many broken bones and stitches, things like that. Um, but at the same time, I was also very creative, and we were always encouraged as as children. I've got I've got um, two sisters and a brother. Um, to be very creative in different ways. And so uh, my brother was creative in learning how to program. uh, And from the age of 14 was writing programming articles for computer magazines. Uh, My sisters were were very much sort of into more sort of standard art and my dad was an architect. So I always loved doing technical drawing with with the rotary pens, you know, the fine tip pens that you have and had a fascination for drawing things in 3D, getting the perspective right. Um, So, yeah, so that's that's what it was like. It was was quite nice. Great place to grow up. Uh, Very rural, Dorchester being a county town. But, but really no motorways in the county um, and very much sort of rural farming type jobs. Nothing high technology. Um, the only thing that, that really caught my interest in terms of high technology is my neighbour worked at Winfrith, which was the, the test reactor site just outside of Dorchester. And he was one of the guys in the environmental team. And that got me very interested in sort of energy and uh, sort of high technology, if you like, from relatively early ages, the sort of conversations over in the garden fence. So, so what do you do for a, for a living you know and that's sort of sparked some interest there
0: so when we were talking about your a-levels earlier you you, you were telling me you did math geography and art with architecture and it was that architecture which uh, you were really interested in and at the same time you were doing a geology GCSE as well but that's quite a sort of eclectic mix of a-levels isn't it
1: Is Um, Andrew, I didn't know what I wanted to be at that point. (laughs) That was the truth of the matter. And I think a lot of kids at GCSE and A-level genuinely just don't know what they want to be. You know, I think we'd all like to be an astronaut or a pop star. But seriously, though, you know, what what am I going to do with my life? So I was kind of keeping my options open. Um, But actually, it was the geology um, GCSE, and it was specifically the teacher, who really switched me on um, to to minerals specifically um, and the sort of wealth that lives in the earth, if you like, and that that sort of transformed my thinking. I wanted to take geology at, at um, degree level, and and that's what I did. And ultimately, is is I went to Bristol and I studied uh, an MSI um, in geology, and um, that was transformational. Actually, I. I I, yeah, well, I, I didn't realize it uh, at the time. I started the geology course and I thought, yeah, I'm gonna go into finding gold and you know working for a big mining company. Um, and I did really well. I mean, it was a sort of like the touch paper and stand back uh, sort of instance really, because I, I found at school, I, I liked my friends at school. I liked the courses, but, I, but, but to be honest, I wasn't inspired by the teaching. You know, that's not to say the teaching wasn't good, but I just wasn't inspired. I got to Bristol, and I was being lectured by you know world experts in the subject, really knew what they were talking about, and that was it. That's (laughs) I wanted to join the crowd, you know, Um, and so I graduated uh, with first class honours, lots of awards, uh, top of the year. But actually, I think the realization beyond that is actually I wasn't going to be a geologist. Um, I was going to be a material scientist because it was actually the materials I was interested in. And of course, Mother Nature makes very complicated materials. Uh, if you then go into material science, you can go into mad made ones, which are much simpler by comparison, much more predictable. And um, yeah, that to some extent, that set me off on the direction that I've continued to travel.
0: Right. well, it, I, I like that sort of like the blue touch paper idea of being inspired by these, you know, world experts who, who are teaching you and enthusing you and um, uh, around the subject. So you, you did, you, you stayed on and you did research on ure- uranium uh, geochemistry. How did you find the transition from undergraduate into postgraduate? Because they are quite different, aren't they?
1: Yeah, well, it was interesting. I actually had a buffer gap in between. So um, at my undergraduate research project and in the years before that I got into programming a lot so I, I did um, molecular dynamics simulation my master's project was on processing geophysics data from the Japanese seismic array um, to look at the structure of 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 the crust uh, uh, under the sort of tonga pongokomatic trench I think it was uh, but it, I'd become very computer literate very, and I, I liked working with with programming. So I, when I left the, the university, um, I was offered jobs by big mining companies. I remember I was offered a job, I think it was Anglo-American, uh, one of the biggest, and they said, Tom, we, we really want to take you on. But the only problem is we we're in a recession at the moment in the mining industry, and we'd like to give you a job offer, but you start in 12 months. And I thought, what? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you are offering me a great job to start in 12 months. And I thought, that's just I'm not sure I'm attracted by that, um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try something else just to see what it's like, and if I don't like that, I can always go back to to the mining industry. So I I worked as a programmer in Leamington Spa uh, for a year, uh, very well paid, and I found after three months I was bored to tears <laughs> because once I, we once I'd learned what the job was, I'd got into the role, I would picked up all the skills. There was not much development other than basically doing the same thing and it it wasn't enthusing me so it was actually uh, one of the professors uh at the university of bristol uh, a guy called jeff allen who was incredibly influential in that he'd taken on one of my peers as a phd student um a guy called john wild and um jeff did a lot with with BNFL and before that the CEGB. He was a nuclear fuels person and worked at Berkeley initially. And um, through sort of word of mouth, um, it, Jeff had heard about me. And so he actually um, he actually came up to Leamington Spa to hunt me down and um, took, took me out to a series of sort of lunches and dinners um, to convince me that I should come back to Bristol and do a PhD. And it, his offer was, Tom, I, I just want to get you back to Bristol. I will, f- I will find you industrial funding that gives you more than just a normal PhD. And I'll basically let you choose whatever PhD you want to study. But come, come back. I think that you'd be good. So ultimately, I came back. Um, my PhD was part funded by BNFL. Um, it was looking at, at behaviour of uranium in a geological disposal facility environment but it was related to the low-level waste repository up at Drigg and um yeah I, I agreed you know I, I and that was because he was so enthusiastic about the opportunities and I think that he he could see in me that that I wasn't a geologist I was a material scientist he was spot on and I you know eternally thank him for, for going above and beyond to convince me to come back so um yeah, it was, a, it was a big change in that very much. I'd, I'd had that nice buffer where I'd experienced the wider world. I'd got, had a proper job being paid a really good wage, but it, it was the case that I had recognized that um, I wasn't in life for the money. I was in it, in it for the, uh, for the ex- exploration, if you like, and that a PhD was a way of taking on my own project, being given lots of autonomy, allowed to explore the things that i thought were going to be technically important um and to have a very very good supervisor who would make sure that i had the resources i needed i had the contacts that would allow me to do certain experiments um permissions to do you know ex- experiments with uranium and things like that which i think at the time the university weren't brilliantly comfortable with but you know he gave gave me that top cover which allowed me to, to go away and excel. And, and that was really that that transition from undergraduate to postgraduate was the realisation that I was the material scientist and that's what I wanted to be.
0: And it, and it was also something about what motivates you or what doesn't motivate you. Because I've chatted to people and, and, and often they will say, you know, people who enjoy what they do, it's much less about the money. It's usually about something else. You know, you, you sort of said there when you're programming after three months, you could do the job, there was no... It was nowhere to sort of go and develop, but going in and doing a PhD, you're having to move the boundary of knowledge. So you have to develop, you have to be curious, you, you know, and that was clearly very motivating for you. And I guess for, you know, what sort of comes next, that motivation for discovery, curiosity, whatever you want to call it, is a theme that runs all the way through uh, your career, isn't it? It must be one of your big motivating forces, I guess
1: absolutely you're, you're spot on and, and people have asked me before you know what's what's driven you like that and I think it's a combination of two things uh, one is my my dad's an architect he, architect for the Diocese of Salisbury but basically he he designed and helped to build schools all around the county um, and what I always really appreciated about that is that he was creating a legacy that would probably last longer than he does um, and I was, I was never going to be an architect and build buildings, but I loved the idea that you'd have a legacy um, and that you'd leave something behind that would always delineate your contribution to the world. And, and that's very important to me. And that's partly what a PhD is about, is, you know, a copy of your thesis is in the British Library for as long as the British Library stands, right? And that's phenomenal. So hopefully you know 200 300 years time someone might read my thesis and take something useful from it um and you know wouldn't that isn't that a great thought that 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 could happen um i think the other piece is that my grandfather who didn't always particularly see eye to eye with my father he was um in the army uh and by the end of his career he uh, he had his own regiment which is the uh, down in bovington in dorset the tank regiment and uh He was an interesting guy. I think World War Two had made him slightly nuts. Um, But he was a signals engineer originally in the army or signals officer. So he was responsible for making sure the radios worked. Um, And and so he was quite a technical person. And on his journey, he ended up being a special envoy to the Pentagon, being involved in special projects on developing technology. He'd commanded a regiment, which was a listening outpost in, in East Germany kind of thing. So he'd had an amazingly exciting career, but he'd been technology oriented. And um, he spent a lot of time with us as kids. We thoroughly enjoyed being with this mad old guy who, who didn't quite see eye to eye in terms of the way the world worked with my parents. But nonetheless was really keen that, that we would, you know, contribute, I think. It's sort of societally. And it's those two things, my grandfather and my father, who really, I think, have given me a lot of the motivation to do what I want to do because I'm just interested in, in the sort of journey of discovery of technologies which make a difference. Um, and that's it, really. You know, I want to make a positive difference and I want to have that legacy that when I do eventually sit down or the express train stops. I can look and say, yeah, I did make a real difference. I can be content with what I contributed. So let's just
0: talk about this, this Imatec. You stay, you did your PhD, and you graduated, and your thesis is there in the British Library, if anybody wants to go, go, go away and look at it. Um, and you stayed on. You did a postdoc, and then you became a lecturer uh, in the School of Earth Sciences. Um, and that, that went well, but you're always having to do research. Um, and then you get this opportunity with a particular technology that within a university, probably at that time, all they were interested in was the publication, get it published, get it published, get students through, get the research through, you know, and, and, and graduated with new PhDs and postdocs and what have you. But for you, it's also about that's not enough. It's how do we actually apply this? So so just talk through that little journey of Emitech of for us where there must have been a research idea that must have been proven you can see where it can be applied. And the best way to apply it is to spin it out as a company yeah, and deliver the absolutely. technology that way.
1: Well, let me take you back for a second to the sort of comment I made about um, being offered jobs in the mining sector. Because the thing that switched me off was the realization that my, if I was an, you know, a, a, an exploratory geologist, I might go and find a gold field that hadn't been found before. But that goldfield might then sit there for 20 years before it was exploited, before anyone dug it up. And that switched me off completely because to me it said I wasn't going to have any impact in a meaningful amount of time. Um, Whereas then if you fast forward to something like Imitech, Imitech completely came about because of Fukushima. Um, And because, uh, you know, as a a nuclear disaster site, they had a a network. Work, a perimeter A network of detectors, 24 um, m- monitoring stations, and the tsunami knocked out 20, 23, I think it was, out of 24. And the site was effectively blind to the amount of radiation being released where it was going. Um, and it was something like two weeks until a Black Hawk helicopter was launched from a carrier in the Pacific to go and map the distribution of the radiation to understand where it had gone in terms of the the radiation that had actually landed uh, terrestrially uh, across what is now the fallout zone. And I just assumed at the time the Japanese, because they're so tech savvy and they love their robots, there must have been a flying robot that could have gone and done the job. And I watched and I waited and I got impatient. No, their technology didn't seem to exist. And it's because it didn't exist, Andrew. So um, I, I went to the university uh, and And at the time, I was already sort of head of the interface Analysis Center. So I had a little bit of budget. I could do some small exploratory projects, sort of seed seed corn. So I pulled together from my team, which is an eclectic mix of of you know physicists, chemists, earth scientists, engineers of different flavors. Pulled together a team of people that were also interested in the idea that well couldn't we have a flying robot that could map radiation therefore nobody actually has to be put in danger to go and find out the information that's important on safety and we made a first prototype um so we bought in a uav from one of the first companies to make them which was um in germany um we we got hold of some uh, detectors, uh, which were micro gamma spectrometers, which had literally only just existed within a year or so of of the incident happening. And so it was a confluence really of of the the incident, the timing of the incident, but the timing actually of several technologies becoming available. They were only sort of embryonic at that point in terms of capability, but they were developed enough that I could see the opportunity of pulling together several different technologies integrating them to create a solution to this problem, which was, you know, how do we map the radiation? So we made a a first prototype and had tested it in and around Bristol. I got some funding by NATO to then go out to Romania, uh, to the Banat district, which is the mining district uh, in the west of the country, (coughs) in the Transylvanian Alps. Um, And we tested this system out um, by By flying it over this aban- these abandoned uranium mines, where there was uh, it 's very contaminated there I have to say and um we've we recorded some fantastic data um and I remember thinking as we were it's sort of essentially in this in this valley uh, uh, miles away from civilization where it was just us and at nighttime it was the wolves um that we were flying this uAV we were recording data that was you know really surprisingly good and with the sensitivity that we were getting and I thought wow we might really have something here we've got something that works so we then took that information back some videos some photos but more importantly the, the mapping data we'd produced we showcased it to Sellerfield, and we said look we think this technology is important important for the Japanese important for potentially for UK sites or anyone else's site um, what do you think So they said, well, yes, (laughs) we're up for this. We'll support you to do this. So um, they provided some support funding, which I then applied internally within the university for some impact acceleration funding. And when we merged that seller money with the impact acceleration money, essentially it paid for a 12 or an 18 month project to then take it even further. And that culminated actually with us developing a system which was first of all the first UAV ever to fly on a UK nuclear site that, that was my, my team and I which is a bit of history but then at the same time not only was that UAV flying over the nuclear site which was Sellafield, it was mapping the radiation as well and not just giving the intensity it was mapping the energies out so you could start to see oh, what's in this building or what's in that that's that storage uh, unit etc and you know, we made, we made history then. And I think within two weeks of having done those flights at Sellafield, we were out working in Fukushima exclusion zone with the same technology. And um, it, it was great because that technology is now used around the world. Um, it's, had, it's had really impressive impact. And, and you know what? We're now looking at adapting the technology, specifically around the types of sensors we use. So we can use it for mining exploration so there's, there's a, a beautiful sort of circularity to, to how we've sort of gone around this because things like rare earth minerals or even gold, um, they often have a, a fingerprint radiometric uh, signature. And so if you can map the radiation, you can find, you know, where, where the good stuff is. Uh, and that, you know, improves the business case for developing this technology further. Well,
0: that's amazing. And, and I think, you know, it sort of illustrates a couple of things for me. I mean, it sort of really reaffirms this point about technology applied and seeing an opportunity and seeing technology and being in a university where you can integrate. You know, experts can come together and come up with creative solutions to real problems. But the other thing that really speaks to me is, is this hundred mile an hour thing, this hurry up driver that's within you because you don't want to wait. You don't want to You know, you don't want to wait a year for, for Anglo-American uh, you know, it, it was going to take too long to do things other ways. You could get, you know, a little bit of money and get, improve it um, uh, and and take the technology forward fast, which has been a bit of a, dry, a driver in you uh, as well. So I, I'm, I'm going to move now to uh, 2016. Uh, so five years ago, and you get asked to be a special advisor now uh, to the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee. Who are going to do their second report on nuclear research and technology? The first having been done a number of years previously, uh, which was quite influential in terms of setting up the Nuclear Innovation Research Advisory Board and getting some you know advice into into government on on nuclear. Just talk us through that experience a little bit. I mean, it, it's the sort of thing where I imagine you've got all this sort of technology going on on the one side at, at 100 miles an hour, as we said, and now you go to the House of Lords which would feel like to me a completely different place, but a completely different culture, different pace, different way of thinking. Just talk us through that experience.
1: Well, first of all, Andrew, it was an amazing experience and uh, I will always look back on it and and really appreciate the opportunity I was given. (laughs) And I remember this sort of initial meeting I had with the Science and Technology Committee. So this, this is a subsection of the Lords who were all, uh, you know, captains of industry or ex-vice chancellors of various top universities around the country. And I, I remember coming out of that thinking, wow, that, that made my Viva for PhD look extremely easy. <laughs> because um, I'd never appreciated the value of the House of Lords. Um, do I think many people don't. But to go and meet such an incredible bunch of people who were so sharp, and quick to absorb complex concepts was remarkable. And the fact that they're all there for the benefit of the UK, um, partly to hold, you know, the House of Commons <laughs> feet to the fire and keep them honest. I think is incredibly valuable and i i didn't appreciate that value until i'd been through this process and so i was special advisor and that meant that i was working with with the 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 House of, houses of parliament sort of uh, t- science and technology team to help run the inquiry um which, which produced the sort of breaking the cycle of indecision report which you know i, I think has had good impact we seem to be on the right pathway perhaps not as fast as i'd like andrew but um, it was the opportunity that i was able to to shape the inquiry to write pre-write the questions to select who was going to come and contribute evidence um, such that we you know the lords got the right balance of information from you know different sides of the equation if you like and and could, they could be very thorough in making their assessment of where we were. Um, and I think that was very important. I, I think I also gained an appreciation for how politicians do their do their thing. <laughs> in that um, politicians are very good at answering the questions they want to answer and very good at avoiding the questions they don't want to answer. Um, and that was eye-opening, but also very instructive for me, because it was very much around um, how you communicate science and engineering well. Um, and I think that's a, that's a real, that's the thing that we've seen done much better in recent years because of the climate change, or the climate emergency, you can say, and the recognition that we really need to decarbonize our economy, everyone's economy, as soon as possible, really. And that it's a complex technological equation to be able to achieve that. With nuclear as being a big part of that equation, a very important part of that equation. But it's very much about how you can engage the public, how you can engage MPs to understand complex um, conundrums, if you like, uh, and to be able to get them to explain them onwards again in a way that isn't confusing. And so it was a very good lesson in science communication, I think the whole thing. Um, and I'll, I'll carry what I've learned from that whole process with me through the rest of my career and be very grateful for it as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's still a great read, you know, uh, that, that report, Nuclear Research and Technology Breaking the Cycle of Indecision. It's still out there and uh, can be read. Um, so around about that time, you're then uh, promoted and uh, become Professor Tom Scott uh, at Bristol and you win a Royal Academy of Engineering a research fellowship um, uh, to really focus on some of this technology development, uh, looking at uh, materials containing uranium and plutonium. So I guess that really then sets you up with a a greater bandwidth, if you like, to really focus on research development uh, uh, and application. And how would you sort of characterize the five, because that, that fellowship sort of come to an end now and, you, you, you know, into a new, new chapter, but looking over those five years, how would you sort of characterize the high points for you where, do you, where you really felt that, I mean, I use this word, uh, you know, people are in their element, there are moments where you're just in your element, you're doing the right thing in the right place at the right time and, and your strengths and your passions are contributing to something. Just describe one or two of those moments over the last five years
1: sure well i mean firstly it's the royal academy that that brings such value um to what i've been able to do over the last five years because uh, a royal academy fellowship gives you full remit to not just develop a portfolio of research but it's it's research and development and then implementation with the view to doing positively disruptive things so um some of, some of the major things, uh, we, we've done quite, quite a lot of technology deployment now in Chernobyl, in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, uh, not just in the power plant itself. And I think lots of people have seen, you know, robot, our, <laughs> robot dogs wandering around inside the new safe confinement and, and obviously creating some history there. But I think also the taking the UAV work onwards <clears throat> to show that we can now map radiation safely from many kilometres away by using multi-rotor or or fixed-wing UAVs. Uh, And I've been developing this technology with Bayes as being a major stakeholder, is that if we had another nuclear emergency in the UK or somewhere nearby in Europe today, that my radiation mapping technology is now good enough that we can deploy it from 10 or even 20 kilometres away to go and do the job of mapping over the top of a stricken power station or or facility and that we don't need to send any humans in to do that we can do it extremely well in fact we probably do it better than uh if people were on the ground or people were in helicopters per se and um so so the work that we did flying over the red forest which is obviously infamous as being one of the most radioactive places on the surface of the planet was really gratifying in terms of taking that technology and showing that not only can we use that technology when the drones are really close and we can fly around nuclear plant and stay within line of sight, but we can do it further away and that we really can address a nuclear disaster in a way that we just couldn't at the time of Fukushima. And it was, for me, that's one of the biggest achievements. Uh, alongside several other sort of uh technology implementations in terms of developing new technologies to look at materials and to sense if they're there. Um, but we, we managed to do a fantastic project, which was funded by the SDFC, which was looking at using very, very high powered lasers, um, but but notably the ones at the Central Laser Facility at Harwell. So, you know, we're, we're talking petawatt lasers. De- you could call them death lasers, if you like. Um, <laughs> And essentially, we're hitting tiny, tiny um, wires of material in order to create different beams of gammas uh, and neutrons so that we can then do flash radiography or flash detection through nuclear waste packages so that we can just check how much fissile material would be inside them, for example. And so, you know, we did some really transformational stuff on trying to flip the lid on how people have always tried to do fast neutron imaging or or gamma ray radiography and to develop these sources as well as now we've been working on developing the detection materials you put on the other side of the package so that you can have a, have a, a better efficiency for picking up what, what does and doesn't get through. And uh, it, it's being inside some of these very large facilities whether it's the sort of gargantuan new, new safe confinement structure and you're looking up at the face of the sarcophagus or you're at Harwell and you're in the central laser facility and you're with one of the biggest most powerful lasers on the planet and you're you're, you've got dummy nuclear waste package you're shooting gammas through and you you kind of just stop yourself and think wow as a little kid I did not think I'd be doing this um and I I, I look back I remember my mum kept it in the attic I did a picture once as it, I think I must've been something like eight or nine years old of what my ideal bedroom would look like. Okay. This is maybe slightly off, 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 off stream, but just bear with me. And that picture, which I've still got now, um, it had, it had a shark tank. Everyone wants a shark tank, but it also had a robot that would clean up, uh, <laughs> clean up and tidy up, which is important. It had, it had lasers as well for, for shooting shooting anything that would come near the bedroom window. It had lots of technology, which when I look back to now, I think maybe I've not changed so much from the nine-year-old that originally drew this picture. And that, yeah, a lot of the stuff that I've now gone and done is is the kind of stuff that I think, uh, and I've seen that children can really engage with Is going, wow, that's really cool, Absolutely. you know? and. I, I think it's quite important not just to have the impact by developing the technology, but my God, we need a lot more scientists and engineers in the future you know, generations to come. Mm. And if, if anything that I've done can inspire just one extra child to go into a STEM subject, then I'm, I'm very, very happy.
0: Absolutely, yes, yes. So let's just think about that. So the, the, the younger Tom, if you could offer your younger self one piece of advice. What would it be
1: I would tell myself that just as important if not more important than the end objectives is the journey and that you need to savor and appreciate the journey that you go on and of course the journey is made exciting and fantastic not only by the places that you go to but more so by the people that you work with, it's about shared experience, and that's the thing that you keep with you, and that gives you the strength when you need it. You can draw on those relationships and the things that you've done together. It's almost a sort of band of brothers type thing, um, which gives you the motivation to carry on and to mm-hmm. do more and to you know discover more things. Um, so yeah, it's very much the journey and. I guess there's one thing, you know, you said the express train, we're rushing on. And yes, I want to push and push and push and get technology implemented. But I've learned I need to appreciate the journey, appreciate who I'm sharing it with. And um, the younger Tom, I think, would have enjoyed it even more um, uh, if, with that sort of guidance in hand, I think.
0: Yeah, it is great advice. Somebody once said... Um, uh, you know, that, that to that same question was enjoy the journey. But the nice thing that you've added to that is you might be going on an express train going 100 miles an hour, but you, you're with a group of people on that journey. And actually, when you're on the train, you don't always feel like you're going 100 miles an hour. And you do have those moments to savour, to look at the scenery, to point that out to your colleagues. And actually, that shared experience is, is a lovely picture. Um, and I was just I just wrote down a couple of things as we went through. Uh, to encourage you going forward because you know you've got bigger and uh, and more amazing things to come so tom keep exploring because that's your passion and keep creating history because that's your legacy so thanks so much for your time
1: oh thank you very much Andrew. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you
0: if you've enjoyed this podcast To help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.